0: You're listening to the Next Exec podcast series with Executive Women's Forum. Hello, and welcome to the Next Exec Podcasts Wise Women series. My name is Preeti, and I am a Security Analytics Research Lead at IBM, and a member of the EWF's Rising Leader Forum. The wise woman I'm hosting on this episode is Shamla Naidu. Shamla is the managing partner of IBM Global Security Services and is one of the most influential security executives among Fortune 50 companies. Shamla has worked in information technology and information security over the last 35 years in every role from programmer, network designer, engineer, functional director, to global leader. Shamla serves on advisory, not for profit, and academic boards of various public and private institutions. She has been admitted to the Illinois State Bar and the DC Bar and teaches technology and privacy law at John Marshall Law School. Welcome, Shamla. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. I wanted to learn more about your career path. You have a very interesting title, Managing Partner. What does that mean? What do you do, and what has your journey been so far? Hi, Preeti. It's great
1: to be here. So let me start by just sharing a little bit about my background and how I got to be in this role. So I started in technology, and I have been a technologist for almost all of my life. This year, it's been 37 years that I have held a technology-related job. Somewhere along the way, yes, I went to law school, and I have a law degree, but that really was a second career for me. It was not my primary role. It was really my decision to go to law school to help to round out my portfolio and to couple my technology background and experience with knowledge and real good solid experience around the law and regulations and how those two topics come together. One of the things I saw very quickly was that there was a convergence of technology and the law Simply because technology brings so much opportunity and, you know, the law has to keep up and the law has to help to mediate the contention and sometimes disagreements that happen in businesses, etc. So those two topics were coming together very, very quickly. And we saw that with Enron and other kinds of topics, you know, way, way long ago. And I wanted to make sure that I understood those two topic areas really well that I could bring value to the companies where I was working. But to go back to my background, so I started in technology, have been a technologist, have grown in various technology roles, but many times, you know, if you think about 35 years ago, technology was just a technology function. Security was not even a profession. So you had to do your technology job, you know, taking care of all security controls and security risks and security challenges, and it was all just bundled into one role. So I did my technology job with a security lens and you know, have just grown through that. And then when security became its own profession, I did branch out from being a CIO to being a security leader because there was a lot of opportunity there, both to grow professionally, but also to add value to an industry that was new and up
0: and coming. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned that you went to law school. Was that in the middle of the career? And how did you go to it?
1: Absolutely, so you know, I think my academic journey is an unusual one. I have three degrees. Two of them I did when I was still back in Africa, and I did all of the academic education at night while I had a full-time job. Okay. So when I came to the U.S., I had a full-time job, and I decided to go to law school. I did that too at nighttime, going to a nighttime program, and you know, just continued the academic journey.
0: Wow, that's that's really inspiring, and you must have worked really hard. <laughs> So you also mentioned that you went to, I mean, you studied in Africa. What has it been like? Like, what were some of the challenges that you faced as an immigrant?
1: Well, you know, it's it's interesting, right? When you come to any job, any role in any country, you really have to bring your whole self to the job. And, you know, being an immigrant women didn't really change for me. What really happened is I had to learn how to integrate into normal U.S. culture, normal U.S. business, and really, you know, uh, bring everything that I had and adapt to this new environment. So, you know, for me, it was more about learning more about myself and a lot of the lessons and cultural norms that I had become accustomed to and a lot of business decisions and business environments that were different in my country than they were in the US. And, you know, just having to adapt to all of that, but understanding that when you integrate, you integrate your whole self into both the culture as well as a business culture.
0: That's a fantastic point, And it resonates with me a lot. So what would you, if there was one piece of advice that you would give to young professionals who are facing similar challenges, what would that be? How do you think they should adapt to the culture and what can they do right? So, you know, I'll give you one
1: example that still lives with me. One of the first things my new boss at the time told me, because I came here, went straight into a job, and he said to me, he asked me a question, and I was answering this question, and he looked at me across the table and he said, you're going to have to speak way louder than that, right? So culturally for me, I came from a very quiet culture, a very humble culture, And whether it was in work or whether it was in business, we were very just a quiet culture. And so I came here bringing my whole self and that's, you know, that humility and quietness came with me. And he said to me, you have to talk much louder than that. And, you know, one of the things I learned from that is that integration because in order for people to take me seriously or in order for people to listen, in order for people to understand what value I bring, they had to understand me. They had to understand my communication. They had to understand the words I was using. They had to understand the approach I was taking. And so for me, it was very much about that learning about myself. So if I had to go back and tell myself what I needed to know, it would be to not be fearful, but to you know look, learn, and listen to people around you. And I think that observation of how other people interact was something that we have to adapt to and learn from.
0: That's really valuable and great piece of advice. So as an executive, you will not have a lot of data at hand to make informed decisions. What were some of the riskiest decisions you've made? It may not be just a business decision. It could also be a personal decision. What are some of these risky decisions that you've made in life? You
1: know, we work in security. Every day you make risky decisions. Every day you're making a decision about whether or not to take an action or whether to not take an action. And those outcomes are not always sure. And one of the things that I would highly encourage young people to do is to not make decisions that are driven by the fear of the outcome. We have to think really hard about... What's our goal? What are we trying to accomplish? And I think well-thought-out, well-risk-managed decisions are always going to give you a good outcome. And so, you know, we have to stop being driven by fear. And the fear of failure sometimes stops us from making the best decisions. And so we have to look beyond how this could fail. We have to look at what are the benefits you're going to get when a decision you make is successful. And I think that will drive better decision-making and it will also drive more risk-taking because when you take more risks, you actually get better rewards. I'll give you an example of that. I remember, and I've done this twice in my career, the first time when I was a computer operator,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I left the job and went to a company and took a lower-level job in order for me to go be a developer somewhere else. And looking for the opportunity... So I took a low-level job in order to go forward faster, where there was more opportunity. Fast forward, you know, a few decades, and I left a CIO job to go be a CISO. Mm -hmm. And I did that again very deliberately because I knew that the opportunity for where security was going strategically was far greater than where I was. And I thought, well, taking a step back Supposedly, you know, at that time it seemed like a step back, in order to go forward faster, sometimes it's a good decision. Although, at the time it was a risky career decision. Interesting. Um, I, I don't regret that.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's great. So how did you make or how did you overcome this fear of having failure as an outcome? Were there some specific instances that, you know, where you had to dig in deep to find your strength and to overcome that fear?
1: You know, I think the more you fail, the more you realize that it's easy to fail. (laughs) And the the more you recover from failure, the more you realize that failure is not fatal. Okay. And so I think lots of practice, lots of experience at failing. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is to recognize that in every scenario, whatever the outcome is, there will be some benefits and there will be some lessons. And so even when we make the best decisions that give us the best outcomes, we think it's because we made a great decision. When we make bad decisions, we get outcomes that maybe we don't like, but there are lessons to be learned from that outcome because suboptimal outcomes will give you the opportunity to redo it and redo it better, or to make different decisions, or to take different actions. And so it's really important for me that you know, I look at every outcome as a successful outcome because even if it doesn't give me the outcome I expected, the outcome I did get will teach me something new. And so I look at that as a learning experience.
0: That's a very nice piece of advice because a lot of us have to learn from that, especially when it comes to learning that not all failures are fatal. I think that's very important. What gets you going on a daily basis?
1: Every day, I want to add value in whatever role it is, whether it's role as a mother, as a wife, as a friend, as an employee, as a professional, as an executive, as a coach. It doesn't matter what role I'm playing. I want to add value to that role and make that role more powerful than it was yesterday. And so, you know, I look at opportunities to reinforce what I know to learn new things, and then to add value to the people around me, to the circumstances around me, to make a better outcome.
0: You mentioned the various roles, you know, you're a mother, you're a friend. How do you juggle all of these roles? I think as women, a lot of us get asked questions about work-life integration. So what is your take on this? There are a lot of discussions where they say women can't have it all. So what is your take on it? So, you know, this will be an unusual way to approach
1: this, but I will share my method. I don't make distinctions between work and life, my role as a mom, my Mm -hmm. role as a wife, my role as an employee. For me, it's all about the wholesome self. Okay. So I don't make the distinctions. I need work life balance because work and life is integrated. And, you know, as you think about us living in a digitized world, It's going to be even more integrated than ever before. And so to try and create bright lines between those roles is a very difficult task. And so what I like to tell people is, you know, you have to find a role where you can integrate it into your life seamlessly Mm -hmm. and where it just works. If it doesn't work and you feel like you need to separate your work from your life, then you really need to look hard at what is it you're looking to do and who are you looking to be. And so for me, I think it's really important that people understand that work and life is going to coexist. They're going to integrate, and we have to learn how to juggle those things. And sometimes it means taking your kids and putting them to bed and then going back to work and working until, you know, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. Sometimes it means taking your kid to the office Mm -hmm. so that you can get your job done. You know, and the kid's sick and had to stay from school, well, you may need to do that. And you have to find the environments where both those things are going to be acceptable. If your boss says you absolutely cannot bring your child to work, well, you know, you have to then ask yourself, what kind of values are you working with? What kind of environment are you operating in? And how are you going to reconcile those, you know, personal and and professional issues?
0: The more I speak with you, the more I realize that you're such an insightful person. So when do you get all these Eureka moments? When do you have time for retrospection?
1: You know, for me, I don't make a special time for retrospection. I do it constantly, right? So there's two things that I do every day. At the end of each day, I look back at my day and I ask myself, what did I do today that went well? Mm -hmm. What would I stop doing if I had to relive today? What would I not do?
0: That's a great perspective.
1: And then, because what I want to do is learn for what I should not do tomorrow, and I want to learn about what worked today that I should do more of tomorrow. That's one thing I do. The second thing I do is I like to get feedback. So in every situation, I ask people for feedback. And almost always, it's the people who are around me most often and the people who observe me most closely. Okay. So it's small pieces of feedback. So I don't do big feedback sessions of let's spend an hour and you can tell me everything you like about me or everything you don't like about me. What I will do is ask people small questions. How did that meeting go? What did you think about that phone call? You know, or could I have done something differently in this specific conversation for these two minutes? And so I make the idea of getting feedback less burdensome on the people giving it and more in the moment so that people are doing it in a very natural way and it's not meant to be a judgmental condition.
0: That's great. I think I'll definitely incorporate more of that in my day-to-day job. So I was reading this interesting article where Jeff Bezos says that if he isn't looking five years into the future and if he isn't planning five years ahead, then he's not doing justice to his role. I'm guessing as an other executive in another big global company, you also have similar responsibilities. So what is on your mind right now for the next five years? What is your vision, especially in the field of cybersecurity?
1: You know, I think one of the things we always have to do is be open to innovation. Everything is going to change, and that's the only constant. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that everything is going to change is important because that allows you then to accept disruption and to be able to embrace innovation because everything can be done differently. You have to find the way to do it differently. And everything is going to change at some point. If you don't change it, someone else will. And so it's really important, I think, that as we think about how life as we know it will be disrupted and changed, how business as we know it will be disrupted and changed, how we as consumers will behave differently, how the market will serve our needs differently. It's important for us to, you know, have open eyes everywhere we go and everything we do to look at new and different ways of doing the same old things we've always
0: done. That's very insightful because especially the part where you said, if you do not make the change, someone else will. So it's better to take the credit for yourself. And how do you bring about this change that you talk about, this disruption in an organization, yet get everyone's alignment on going towards that path? You know, the way I've
1: always thought about disruption and change is how can we make things better for the people that matter? And if you have a new idea, as radical as it may be, It's easy to talk to someone about that radical idea if it benefits them in some way. And so an easy way to institute change is to find things that people will embrace Mm -hmm. or feel comfortable with because the outcome is a better outcome than they could otherwise have. And so it's always important, I think, as we think about change and disruption, is to think about who are the stakeholders that will benefit? How do you get them on board with this new and changed idea? And then, you know, make that a movement, right? Okay. Changes start with one or two people with one or two crazy ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and they and they slowly increase and they slowly become a movement. But that movement doesn't happen overnight. So we have to be patient. But you also have to keep reinforcing the benefits, restating the idea, and, you know, talking to as many people as you can about, those new and and changed ideas, because it is difficult to change culture. Change management is probably one of the hardest things you do when you're trying to institute change. Communication is the key, and getting people to see how they will benefit is a really important criteria for how people will embrace or decline your change.
0: In a nutshell, you would want to create a win-win situation and try to get everybody on board.
1: It always has to be a win-win situation because if it's not a win-win situation, then you have to ask yourself, why would you make that kind of change and what kind of personality might you be, you know, emulating to make change that doesn't create win-win situations, that doesn't bring benefits to others, that doesn't make the world a better place, that doesn't make, you know, individuals better people, it doesn't add value to an environment that you're in.
0: Great. And you were just mentioning about making the world a better place. You also volunteer for a lot of nonprofits. You sit on advisory boards. What is your motivation and what is the change that you would like to bring in in those domains?
1: Motivation for me in donating my time to various organizations and group efforts and special interest groups, etc., for me is all about learning because the more I engage with other people, At all levels, at all different areas of experience and skill, I get to learn. Even when I'm interacting with a four-year-old, I look at them and I think, what can I learn from this four-year-old? And so for me, every situation is always about what can I learn that would make me a better person, that Mm -hmm. would make me a better professional, that would make me more valuable to the world. And so, for example, I teach, and I don't teach because I want to teach. I teach because I want to learn. Okay. I learn more when I prepare to teach than when I actually am a student.
0: Yeah, I think that that definitely makes great sense. Mm -hmm. And Shamla, it has been great chatting with you. Thanks a lot for this heart-to-heart conversation. I think I've certainly become a wiser woman today, (laughs) hopefully soon to join the ranks of wise women like you. And hopefully our podcast listeners will also greatly benefit from this conversation. Thank you very much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Peter.